Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a very, very good day for me because the man wow. that I'm sitting across from, I've been trying to get on the show since 1977 <laughs> and finally has happened during this uh, holiday season. Scott Ackerson, a guy who has meant a lot to me over my career in very unique ways, which we're going to talk about during this podcast. But this is a special podcast because Scott is involved in the merging of entertainment and sports in a situation where he had incredibly successful results doing so. And we're going to talk a lot about the kinds of things that he was involved in and bringing comedy to sports because before he got involved in anything in the sports world, there was very few, if any, comedy moments. But it's fair to say in his previous job, where he was before that, which we'll talk about um, at the mothership at ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut, he also added a touch of comedy uh, with Mr. Berman. Uh during his tenure there before he came to Fox. But as I always do, I look across from my guests. I never know what I'm going to say before I start my cold open until I look directly at the person and I'm looking at him. And the thing I'm thinking of right now is something actually we talked about right before uh, I went on the air here. And Scott said a phrase that I think 
is the greatest phrase that you could ever say if you are any kind of artist or in any job where you're at. If you could accomplish what I'm about to say, then you're golden. You don't have to worry about anything. And in his case, the phrase was day one, show one, number one. You can apply that to anything you want in business, but what Scott Ackerson is talking about is a show that he was involved with, that he came to Fox Sports from ESPN five months before one of the most groundbreaking shows in the history of sports entered the fray, and that's Fox NFL Sunday with... The original cast of JB, Terry Bradshaw, Howie Long, and the man who could get in a hurricane and his hair would never move, Jimmy Johnson. And so what Scott's referring to when he told me that earlier is that he came to Fox and they started a new show, a studio sports pregame show for football. And since the first show the first day until he just retired after the show has been on I believe 17 years but the point being is that that show not one show not one year not one time has that show ever wavered from being number one and competition when you're in business is fierce and any business that you're in, let alone show business, it's brutal. Everything you do, the competitor tries to figure out a way to beat you. Look, I don't. it doesn't take a genius to figure out when you're driving across country or in your town, you, you head to a McDonald's, and what's miraculous is you go to the McDonald's, and as you're passing the McDonald's, there's a Burger King, there's a Jack in the Box, there's a Wendy's, and you're wondering, like, wait a second, why are these things there? It's because McDonald's spends millions and millions of dollars on marketing, figuring out where to put their McDonald's, and the other companies just don't. They just put one near them. <laughs> that's their philosophy. There's a television show that's a hit, like Modern Family. The next year, there's five more pilots that come out like that. If there's a company like Fox that comes up with that line that's in football, you know, that line, that graphic, the next network that year or whenever they can put the line on. When David Hill came over from Australia and he initiated that highlight box, so he comes over, does that, does something innovative. Wouldn't you know, every sports network does something similar, but then they put theirs in a different corner or up at the top. So the point I'm trying to make is this show, Fox NFL Sunday, they start and they have this group of people that are on the panel there. And those people are have been around a long time. The choice was to find veterans, people who weren't just like new, people, not a football player that was just coming off. These were people that had been around for 20 years doing it. And when you make that choice, the average age of the person on that panel could have been 50. There was a decision made by the company to hire people who, you know, Terry Bradshaw had four Super Bowl rings. Um 
at the time. You got Jimmy Johnson, who'd won, I believe, two national championships, uh, Super Bowls with Dallas. You had JB, who was a classic guy who'd done play-by-play and was one of the most respected guys. And you had Howie Long, who was probably going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. And so the point being is that he puts together this show, and during his tenure, there's a lot of competition. There's people coming. There's people hiring different people. You got Deion Sanders. You got all these situations happening. And how do you fend off that? That kind of thing. You got Dan Marino. You have all these kind of people who uh, have been put against them. The ESPN crew, there's an HBO crew that's put together. And what always fascinated me when my conversations with Scott would go, I thought the toughest situation that he had in business was the fact that he had these four people and they were getting older. And not only were they looking older, but the chances are that you get possibly less relevant the older you get. And there's people who come into those other shows that might be more relevant, who have more followers, who have more people that might be interested in them because their accomplishments happen in the lifetimes of people in their 20s and 30s as opposed to people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was always fascinated with Scott is he produced the show and was a main ingredient in making that show go and, and producing the show and, and the driving force behind it was the decision that you have to make in business of when do you start making changes and how do you start making changes and how is it going to go and what's fascinating sometimes events happen in your business life that you're not in control of and one of the things i want to talk about that i don't expect scott to talk about later uh, is the fact that you know jb was a guy he was huggable and lovable and he appealed to the african american audience but he also appealed to the mainstream audience and he was a straight man to the comedy that was happening and he was the guy who kept the show going but sometimes when you're an executive producer or you're a producer and you're working on a show and you're driving force there's other elements to your business that you can't control. And those elements have to do with how somebody does their contract, how the deals are made or whatever. And you really, you, you just naturally want things to go a certain way, but that's not your world. You're not in that world. You're in the creative world. You're right in it. You're in a show that's the number one show on television. And so sometimes you hear things happening similarly to Howard Stern and Jackie the Joke Man, Martling. You hear things, rumblings, hey, this guy isn't really happy with his deal, but you get a feeling that it's going to get done. At Saturday Night Live, when Norm MacDonald was there, you got the feeling like, hey, he wasn't necessarily happy with the way the deal was or whatever, but things were going to get done. And then in the case of Saturday Night Live, one holiday after the break, you tune it in and Colin Quinn is in the desk. And you're like, what happened here? What's going on? Or on the Howard Stern show, you you tune in and, and, and it's like, where's Jackie? Hasn't Jackie been there for 15 years? Where is Jackie? Nobody talks about it. Nobody says anything. And then one day you hear that JB, who is the rock, a guy who drives the show, is not going to be there anymore. And he's going to CBS. Now, naturally, the reason why somebody goes to another network normally 
if they are a family and they have a great relationship, is they normally feel that maybe the business affairs or the people in charge way up above who are wearing nicer suits than Scott in corner offices make decisions that basically say, hey, we're going to offer a person this and it's fair and and we'll just hold the line here and what's the worst that can happen? But sometimes artists, and I consider everyone on that panel an artist now, they feel maybe underappreciated. And then somebody comes along and says, you know what, you're great. And we're going to not only give you what they were offering you, but we're going to give you this too. And we're going to guarantee this many years. It's like Wes Welker in New England. Could anybody imagine that Tom Brady is going to cut his salary and tell Robert Kraft, I'm going to cut my salary. I want you to get people in. And Robert Kraft makes the decision to Wes Welker, you know what, I know you caught 32 more passes than anybody else in the league, but I'm just going to offer you $5 million a year and, you know, uh, take it or leave it. And because he believes that, why would Wes Welker leave Tom Brady? Tom Brady's taking a cut. And then just something happens in an artist's mind, and then before you know it, they've signed the deal with another group in that case Denver and in JB's case CBS and and the producer of the show is like what you know what the fuck happened what I mean how did this happen I mean it's not like we couldn't have figured this out and made this work but it didn't happen but what happens in bad situations like that people rise they rise and they come to the test even though people have done things that is out of their control and they rise and they figure out a way to make the show better, to do whatever they have to do. The first experiment, I call it an experiment, because uh, was a very popular guy, Joe Buck, whose father was a great announcer, and Joe, we all know, is called Many Super Bowls. They decided to hire him to replace JB, but they had to go on the road because uh, Joe was doing football all around the road. And it's a very expensive proposition. And it's not like the show suffered. It stayed number one, and Joe is very popular. Yeah, it lost the hominess of it, the feeling that there was a home. And when you're on the road all the time, sometimes it feels like you don't, you know, people want to know you're in their home. They don't want to know you're in this place and that place. And so they realize that. And and then, you know, Scott and the group acted again, and they hired Kurt Menefee. And then after that, they sort of thought to themselves, okay, there's a lot of competition here. What can we do to bring somebody who's knowledgeable, who's huggable, lovable, who's a household name, who's a Hall of Fame guy? They brought in Michael Strahan. And the mix works because you have younger people who know these people coming in, and you have the older people who are familiar and feel great about the people there. And when bad things happen to good people that are out of con their control, I always say what defines them as people is not what happens during these wonderful occasions where it's number one all the time and you got your cast and everything's wonderful and everybody's happy. What happens to a person to define their greatness as a producer or in any business there is in the world, whether you're an artist or a dentist, the point being is when the shit hits the fan, you got to figure out how to lessen the stress, come up with solutions, and be in a position where you can still win. And if I had any words of wisdom for anybody here today, it's easy when it's number one and everything's going your way. It's not easy 
when you're number one and people are hitting you from all sides and you're losing people, you're losing bodies and you got to figure out how to make things work in business. And I say to all of you out there, in anything you do, if you can figure out a way to be in a situation where you can take those hits, some that are beyond your control, some, believe it or not, problems you create for yourself. If you can get in a situation and figure out how to maneuver and rectify them and add pieces to the puzzle that can help strengthen what you have to offer, you're always going to be in a position where you're going to be Number one from day one, show one, and number one. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. All right, sports. I love it. My whole office, the wall where we do these podcasts, is lined with Bobby Orr, Jim Craig, the winner of the 1980 Olympic team as a goalie. I have the 2004 Boston Red Sox banner, the on-deck circle for the 2007 World Series when the Red Sox beat Colorado four straight after they'd won 22 games in a row, Colorado. I've got Babe Ruth and Ted Williams. I got Tom Brady in his first Super Bowl, and I got Muhammad Ali over Sonny Liston in Bangor, Maine. Most of the shit is signed but faded because I forgot to get the right glass. It shows you those who can't manage. I would like to introduce my guest today, Scott Ackerson. This guy is one of the biggest guys in sports television, and I can't even say enough about it. I'm going to tell you his introduction, which obviously, if you know the show, will probably be longer than the cold open, but I like to give people a proper introduction. If I repeat myself, I am so sorry. 
but uh, I think this is very, very, very important. Scott Ackerson is an Emmy Award-winning producer and Fox Sports executive who was the vice president of studio production overseeing the network's news coverage. He was previously a coordinating producer on Fox's NFL Sunday in charge of all studio programming for the networks and entities within Fox Sports since 2011. He also served in an advisory role to the Big Ten Network and oversaw a production unit that created feature segments for all of Fox Sports entities. In 2012, he served as an interim president of the cable channel Speed while still overseeing all of the studio production. Ackerson joined Fox Sports in 1994, leading Fox NFL Sunday to its 17-year run as America's most-watched NFL pregame show. Under his direction, the network's signature studio program became a cultural phenomenon watched by millions and millions of people nationwide every Sunday. Its continuous run at the top places it alongside such iconic programs as the Today Show, 60 Minutes, and under Ackerson's guidance for the entire run of the show, well, almost the entire run of the show, Fox NFL Sunday has taken home an Emmy Award for Best Studio Show four times. An accomplished studio producer, Ackerson played a significant role in the ongoing success of this most impressive sports dynasty. His keen eye for talent and chemistry in producing an entertaining brand of NFL studio coverage helped advance the sports TV careers of Howie Long, Jimmy Johnson, Terry Bradshaw, Jimmy Kimmel, Jillian Barbary, and Frank Caliendo. Before joining Fox Sports prior to its first NFL season in 1994, Ackerson honed his craft from 87 through mid-94 at ESPN. In addition to his nightly responsibilities as the coordinating producer of SportsCenter, a position he attained in 1993, he had numerous special studio assignments for ESPN, including the World Series, the Super Bowl, which he did from 1989 to 93, and the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. Ackerson broke into broadcasting as an intern at WBNS Radio in Columbus, Ohio, and his first job came at WOUB Radio TV in Athens, Ohio in 1982. Over the next few years, he honed his television skills in such mega markets as Huntington, West Virginia, WOWK, Altoona, Pennsylvania, WTAJ, San Antonio, KMOL, <laughs> Minneapolis. We had about two, three different names for that station, so. And Ackerson graduated from Ohio University in 82 with a journalism degree, and he was a four-year member of the Ohio University bowling team. A lot of people might not know this about Scott, but he is a 13-time sports Emmy winner since he joined the team at Fox in 1994 uh, with the first hour-long NFL pregame show in history on a broadcast network. He held the position at Fox for 17 years, and his tenure also included, get this, five Super Bowl pregame shows highlighted by the post-9-11 event in 2002, which was one of the most memorable events in sports history. Please welcome my guest today, the man, the guy it took me seven years to get on this couch, Scott Ackerson. 
Well, thank you. With that introduction, I should have gotten here earlier. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, uh, but no, it's it, it's it, it's been a a, a fun run. Uh, very fortunate uh, to uh, as a guy who came from a town called Hilliard, Ohio. I uh, didn't think all this would happen to me as I was flipping burgers at Frisch's Big Boy or working at Dairy Queen. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it has. Now, normally I don't start off right away like this, but well, since you mentioned your beginnings in Hilliard, Ohio, mm-hmm. I, I figure what we can do right away, if you don't mind, is we could start off and we're going to go way, way, way back. Whoa. So we're going to go back to your family life, what kind of situation you were growing up in, and what was the first introduction or, or, or inspiration for getting into the sports world from possibly flipping burgers, mm-hmm. taking bites out of them and putting them in boxes for the people you hated. Right. Well, no, actually, I put Tabasco sauce in their hamburger, <laughs> actually, and I did do that. There was one guy I did do. He's so bad. But anyway, uh no, I, I came from a normal Midwestern town. I mean, uh, two parents, uh, the third kid out of four, uh, three brothers, one sister. Sister was the oldest. Uh, my my kind of, there were two people that really were kind of inspirational in terms of sports television, and there was another gentleman in terms of uh News and originally I wanted to do news. I uh, I was one credit short in terms of a double major in terms of political science and journalism uh, at Ohio University. At Ohio University. So you went to Ohio. You majored in what? Uh, I majored in journalism. Okay, so you wanted to be a writer. Or... I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to actually naively, I believe that you know news actually cared about the stuff that affects people's lives. Um, as I and I wanted to work at the national level, and uh, I started out in, in in local news, and I realized fairly shortly in that that wasn't going to be the case. Uh, that especially local news was about back then it was about murders, fires, and stabbings. Now it's about you know Kardashian's ass and you know stuff like that. So it's even gotten less in terms of what news is but or depending on your view more more yes um so uh anyway uh after i i had an opportunity to get to espn uh and i was how did that opportunity come about i mean you're 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 studying journalism you're at ohio uh, university after you graduate it's i I graduated and i was in the the local it's amazing the people you meet along the way uh because you know the different people you meet along the way leads you to where you end up being relationships everybody yes relationships are very big so i actually met this uh executive producer she was dating uh, one of the people on our assignment desk at KMOL, that's in San Antonio, Texas. Okay. And we went to a Joe King Carrasco concert. Uh, for those of you who don't know Joe King Carrasco, Google him. Anyway, um, so I met her at this place, and you know she saw my shows, and her boyfriend at the time 
spoke highly of me. Now, when you say your shows, these local shows, what were you doing there? At I the was local? doing the weekend news, and then I was also producing entertainment stuff. Like but you weren't on camera. You I were was not on camera. But she liked how you produced these local mm -hmm. shows. Now, right. but, but I'm sorry to keep getting you back here, but how do you go from graduating college to producing a local news channel show? It, well, like, where do you start? How do you start? Well, for me, I, it may have been that I had a little too much fun in college. Uh, and so I actually graduated in four years in an extra quarter, but that was the best thing that ever happened to me because uh, I was not a 4.0 student, would never have claimed to be a 4.0 student. I would never have wanted to work hard enough to be a four-point student, even if I could have been. Um, so I ended up working at the you know, local WOUB over the summer. and then Was that an internship? Or? That was, yeah, it was unpaid. It was with the students. It was a PBS station affiliated with the university. And just, you know, I really hadn't produced anything, quite honestly. Uh, so anyway, I graduated in November. Nobody graduates in November. Okay, everybody graduates in the spring. And so... As a result, when I graduated, the bulletin board at the university had like five different jobs that were available. Well, I could leave. I had my degree. So I applied for a job at WOWK and uh, went and down there. what was that in? That was in Huntington, West Virginia. It was a weekend producer and then actually do some reporting uh, on air, uh, basically covering southeastern Ohio. Uh, which I did very poorly, but nevertheless. So you um, had to drive down to West Virginia and interview. I drove down to West Virginia and interviewed, uh, interviewed with the news director. Okay, so you drive down for an interview, mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, how to get gigs. Mm -hmm. They don't understand what it takes to get a gig. So here you go, you interview for your first job you're ever going out for, and you get the gig. Correct. So what do you feel that you did in that room knowing that you don't have any experience at all except for interning to Zero. get a paid gig. What did you do in there that made you get the gig over everybody else? I think it was that I was, and I think you know me well enough to know, I was pretty confident uh, in terms of what I thought I could do. Were you chain smoking in the office? Well, back then in newsrooms, everybody smoked. Worst decision I ever made in my life, by the way. But putting that aside... Um, I, I was I did not necessarily smoke with her uh, at the time because um, not cigarettes, not cigarette. No, I, she was a Bible belt. In fact, when I it was funny, one of the stories when we were there, we had uh, she was help leading the campaign to ban Ozzy Osbourne from playing in Huntington, West Virginia, <laughs> because you know it was devil's music. But and if you do Google them, you want the national anthem doing the Cubs game. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I, I just answered the questions. I never lied. I never embellished. I never tried to do any of that stuff. And that is one thing that I would say is don't try to embellish or say you've done more than you've done because then that can get you in trouble. So I just answered the question straightforwardly. Uh, I think a part of it was is I was available immediately. I was obviously cheap uh, because... I got paid $50 a day to produce on the weekend two shows. And there I had to, you know, rent a hotel room and food and all that. So, but you, and have, then, but you have to go in, but you have to go in 
and take over for somebody who had experience Correct. who's no longer there, and you have to win over these these grizzled veterans on the on, on that news desk mm-hmm. who basically are jaded and have been working in the business in some cases 10 15 20 years and literally i had just gotten out of school and when i went down there and did the job it was okay here's how we do our show you know i followed the uh, person who was showing me the 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 job uh, she had to come in on a Saturday. This is how we do stuff. Uh, then the next day, it's like, okay, it's your show, go. And you just had to really pay attention. And so, I mean, I'd followed news and so on and so forth. But what people don't realize is back then in terms of local producers, you wrote the show, you stacked the show, you decided what was in the show. It was basically the news according to me. Um, and that's what the, the, the gig was. So, but these people, you had to make them feel safe. You had to make them feel like you could do the gig. Mm -hmm. And what instincts did you pull upon to know how to do that? Uh, or did some of them make it very hard on you? uh, There was a couple of people along the way, uh, that, that did, there was, when I, I'll give you this story when I was in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Okay. So anyway, in Huntington, I basically was there for a month and a half and then they laid me off. And actually I went to the uh, news director and said, why'd you hire me if you're going to lay me off in a, a month and a half? And she goes, yeah, I know I feel bad, but the good news is I think you can actually do your job. And there's a job opening in Altoona, Pennsylvania, six and 11 o'clock news. And you know, you can have it if, if you want to do that, which and is I'm a like, step up because you were doing weekends. I was doing weekends and now I'm doing six and 11 o'clock Monday through Friday, just reps five days a week, getting paid under nine grand. Uh, at that time, for nine grand a year to do two shows a day, ten shows a week, five hundred and twenty shows a year, yes. and you were getting nine thousand. I wasn't even getting nine thousand. I actually ended up getting nine one because I made an agreement that after ninety days, if I was still there, I got a five hundred dollar raise. So anyway, so I was at eight six, and then I got up to nine one. So I was. I was in hog heaven when I got up to 9-1. Wow. Um, so anyway, the, the, the funny story is in terms of winning people over was there was a guy at the uh, the station uh, in Altoona. And it was just when, you know, you see live trucks and all this stuff. Well, back then it was just starting that technology. Uh, so we had gotten a live truck, but we had a green screen and we didn't have a... Uh, uh, digital video effects thing, so we couldn't like make it a perfect square. Um, but back then, neither did Nightline. Um, and so, what I did when I when I watched Nightline is I noticed that the basically the right third of the screen was flipped, and that is the same thing that was say let's say a third of the way there. Then a sixth of the way, it was the same thing except flipped on the same side. So what they did is they framed the shot and then they took it so that it wouldn't look like it was kind of weird. So anyway, 
we tried that because I wanted to make it look like the anchor was talking to the uh, reporter out in the field. We had a green screen. And so if the camera person framed it right, we could actually take it and it would look okay. It wouldn't be the greatest thing, but it, we could make it look like the anchor and the reporter were talking to each other. So anyway, we did it a, a couple of, of times and it worked out well. And as you know, in local news, the head anchor has a lot of power in any local news station. So after about three or four times, the program uh, director and why the program director was had anything to do with news was beyond me. Uh, came down and said, hey, I noticed that uh, live shot uh, the other day, you kind of had the you had David talking to the reporter. I was like, yeah, we we kind of set that up and, you know, it makes it look like they're interconnecting. And he goes, yeah, I, I, I saw that um, and I don't really like it. And I go, OK, great. And I moved on. He goes, no, I, I don't think you get it. I don't really like this. I said, no, I heard you. I, I, I got it. He goes, no, I don't want you to do it anymore. And I go, well, why? He goes, because the talent disappears, the, the anchor disappears from the screen. And I go, well, that's what happens whenever you take a cut of a shot anyway. Uh, I go, look, you know, I was watching, you know, Nightline and, you know, that's the same technique that Nightline uses. And he goes, how old are you? <laughs> and I go, I'm 23 years old at that particular time. He goes, oh, you know everything. You watch Nightline. You've worked in Chicago, New York. I snapped, as I can do. <laughs> and I said, look, I may be 23 years old, but it doesn't fucking make me wrong because I'm 23 years old and you fucking know so much that you're stuck here in fucking altitude of Pennsylvania. And I just went off. And <laughs> How did he react to your rant? Well, obviously he wasn't happy because this was in the middle of the newsroom and the you dressed them you dressed them down eerily, in front of everybody yes got here which i would never recommend to anybody <laughs> in fact i learned a big big lesson at that particular point which is to never dress anybody down in public in front of everybody especially uh, people who are your you know superiors or what have you um so they ended up having a five-hour meeting as to whether or not i should be fired or not um fortunately uh, I was hired by the vice president in terms of overall news production for the entire company and the general manager. So I got called up to the general manager's office and he's like, what happened? And I told him and I said, look, I, I'm wrong. You can be wrong. You're not wrong because you're 23 years old. You're wrong because it's a bad idea or whatever. But when you get to the how old are you? Just realize that you've won at that point, you know, because they have run out of arguments and it comes down to, well, the only thing I got left in my pocket is that you're, how old are you? So at that point, um, we didn't talk much with him after that. Uh, him and I did not really converse or share a lot of stories together. Uh, 
One of the biggest mistakes I ever made, I learned from it, though, and that's also, too, is when you do make a mistake, you you need to learn from it. But um, don't ever let anybody tell you you're wrong just because you're 23 years old. And so... Uh, so I don't know how we got to uh, to how we got to that, but eventually we kept on doing what we were doing because it was, you know, that's what Nightline was doing, and it, it worked, and it was it was pretty funny because the general manager goes, just just don't do that again to him, just 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 appease him. You don't have to do it. Just say you will, and then move on. You know, but there was five hour meeting between the program manager, the news director, and the anchor. Um, and you know, I, I thank the news director and the anchor for saving my job because literally I would have been, this is about three weeks into my stint in Altoona, Pennsylvania. This is what's really interesting about what you did. You know, when I was at a company once and I remember my first like month I was at this company, I decided to, to take a gig at a company, uh, and take the check as opposed to taking the little checks and being my own boss. And I remember I was a month in and I'm walking through the hallways of this big company. And you know, when you hear somebody lose their temper, like really lose their temper, like, I mean, like the kind of volume that you're not even like accustomed to in your own house most of the time or whatever. And like the kind of volume that somebody's yelling that the entire company stops, just like your newsroom stopped. And I was like, and there were all these people around. I was like blown away by it. And then I came in the next day and that person's office was cleaned out. And I think what happened with you was, and what happens in every level of business, whatever you're in, there's people who poke the beast. They poke you and they, their, their goal is they want to get you off your game. They want to just create some kind of thing where they can be on top of you and have the upper hand, which is what this guy was doing. Mm -hmm. And what you did was in losing your temper with him, which is not advisable. No, it's not. But in that particular case, the positive thing was it's like if you're in a schoolyard and the bully is always bullying you and you just walk away bullies always bullying you walk away that one day you punch that bully right in the face now you're gonna get the shit kicked out of you but that bully will never fuck with you again after that and so you 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 punch the bully in the face and then you got the shit kicked out of you because you had the five hour meeting yeah and like that and when you're also you got the shit kicked out of you which was which was probably rough is you said that thing that alienated you with your team, which is you're still here in Altoona, Pennsylvania. What does that say about you? And as you yelled that out, there's people at their desk saying, wait, I'm, I'm still here in Altoona, Pennsylvania. So from that moment forward, yes, there were people that supported you because you were a great producer, but there were always people in that newsroom who held animosity towards you, which you could never get over and you could Correct. never recover from unless you just fired everybody and did the whole team, which you weren't in a position to do. That's correct. I was only in position to, to be fired. And, you know, out of that whole rant, that was the one thing that I, actually, the one thing in that rant that I wish I hadn't said, um, everything else that I said, I glad I said it to him because, as I found out later, he had a habit of doing that 
and there were a number of people who came by afterwards and said, I've always wanted to say that, but I never did. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, well, you may not want to. I mean, I don't have any kids. I can get sacked and, you know, I'll go back to Ohio. So how do you move through your business life, move up and get to the situation where you get hired at ESPN, which was the, at the time, the gold standard of sports television? Well, actually, at the time, ESPN, when I went there, had didn't have NFL football. People who are watching this are going to go, huh? Uh, had just lost their NBA contract. Uh, basically was about, didn't have Major League Baseball. Uh, had a lot of college basketball was kind of its bread and butter at the time. Uh, I got there um, getting back to uh, a friend of mine uh, who I met in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, who Relationships. Yes. Uh, who she ended up hiring me in Minneapolis. She became an executive producer in Minneapolis, and that's how I went from San Antonio to Minneapolis. When she told me to send her tape, she was in Tampa. Uh, it, I didn't really want to go to Tampa, and so it, the tape never made it. Uh, when you send tape of your of your of you producing a new show, like what are you sending? You like, send them a show. So you send them. You send them your show. But how much different is your show of a local newscast at 11 p.m. different from the one in San Antonio? Well, I can tell you the 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 newscast that I did in San Antonio. I'm amazed that I actually got hired. But uh, it was actually was it TWA flight 847 that got hijacked. Um, and anyway, we did a, I think it was, and we did a show that was all satellite from Washington, and that was the newscast that I sent um, to kind of show how I can integrate local and and national because their show, they had a 5 o'clock newscast that was... <laughs> national business so on and so forth entertainment actually and that's where i learned about you know both in san antonio and in uh in minneapolis in terms of integrating entertainment into your kind of news stuff and they had a six o'clock show that was more straightforward news uh learn more in minneapolis than probably anywhere i ever worked uh, because i worked with two diametrically opposed viewpoints one was a uh, vice president in charge of news. He uh, handled the 5 o'clock show, and then the news director handled the 6 o'clock show. The news director was more about uh, just the facts, ma'am, uh, and the 5 o'clock show was more about, hey, here are last night's ratings, here's what's big in entertainment. Like, we would literally leave the show with... Okay, it's Mick Jagger's birthday. Here are the Rolling Stones to leave your day. And we would play the Rolling Stones to end the newscast. Uh, you know, whether it's Prince. I mean, Prince's song Kiss debuted on our station because <laughs> relationships. The uh, One of the people on the assignment desk had a relationship with Prince, and he let us debut the song. Um, 
So, I mean, because they saw, you know, Prince saw that we always did music and stuff like that. It it could have been, uh, let's say it was um, uh, Anthony Quinn's. We would play something from the play Zorba to, you know, end the show, uh, which was really fascinating and you know I never thought about but you know it was kind of a different way of of looking at stuff so anyway um she took a job with ESPN uh and she was told that she was going to be the executive producer in charge of special projects keep in mind she's executive producer at a uh number a station that was number 2 heading to number 1 uh to go work for ESPN which at the time was pretty fledgling um And uh, when she got there, uh, she saw her boss and she's looking at her announcement and it says producer director. And she sees him and goes, "Uh, what's this about? What do you mean? What's this about? This is what you're, I I was under the impression I'm the executive producer of special projects. He goes, well, that's kind of hard because that's my job. Apparently he, she didn't talk to the main boss. She talked to the number two or whatever. So she came back to Minneapolis. So she just got back on a plane and came back. got back on a plane, and, you know, the guy that was in charge of the station in Minneapolis, guy by the name of Tom Kirby, great guy, uh, you know, was very well. said, sure, you you can come back. Well, I had kind of had it with news at that point, so I'm like, I like sports. Uh, I'll go for that job. Now, did you ask her if you could go for that job? I told her. Yeah, I told her I I was going to go for that job. And she's going, uh, she goes, well, for yourself, because you're just a producer. I get it. Um, So uh, anyway, and at the time, ESPN was looking for news directors. I mean, news producers. They wanted to kind of get away from always hiring within, always hiring sports guys. They wanted to get a little more newsy. So... Obviously, they weren't big fans because at the beginning, because uh, we already got burned once from this. Why would you be any different? But after this, that that was the one job where I beat the door down and I said, I want this job and just. And you flew and you flew in and took the interview. Did you interview? I ended up they they finally relented and gave me an interview. Uh, I interviewed with uh, three gentlemen. Now, when you say you were persistent there, like how what were you doing beating the door. What was your technique in those days to was, get people's attention? You'd call the phone. You, I mean, I've So you tape, called you every just, day? You, you know, pretty not every day, but I called a lot. And you just left messages? Just left messages because, of course, you know, as you know, he's not in right now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, and how, um, how many calls before he finally answered? Oh, I don't know. Probably 15 or so. Wow. Somewhere in that area. Uh, over probably a two-month period. Persistence. Um, So when I got there, uh, I met with the three people that were in charge. So you met with the guy who was talking to her. Correct. You also met with the guy who had not been talked to this time. Correct. And you met with another guy. And I met with another guy. And it went all very good. I mean, because the one thing I do know is sports. And I... New news. So, do you remember was, the most challenging question they asked you? No, no, not from that interview. Um, Did you do anything differently from the last interview that you got that first gig on to, uh, you know, that first interview you got the job on to that one? No, and I guess the reason I never have is because I've always gotten a job. 
I mean, I've always, if, if I've, if if I've gotten to the interview stage, with one exception, I didn't make it in Albany, New York. I flew to Albany, New York, and that was between Altoona and San Antonio, and I didn't get that job. So but in it, your entire career, every interview you've ever had, you've only failed once. Correct. In terms of, you know, getting the job. I'm sure there are other interviews that I've failed at, but uh, not in terms of getting the, the job. And... I would just always answer the questions, and if I didn't know something, I would say I didn't know something. The other thing is in, is in terms of research. You should know the company that you are interviewing with. You should know the community that you are interviewing at. And a perfect example is, and this is why I think I got the job in San Antonio, was we were talking about the the community and the county and so on and so forth. And the county is spelled B-E-X-A-R. How do you pronounce that? Bexar. That's what most people would say. It's Bear County. And I knew that. And so I was, when I was talking to them, I, you know, said Bear County. And they're like, well, he's in you know, Pennsylvania, how would he's never lived in Texas, so why would he know that? And it's just because you do research. And you should know in terms of who you're interviewing and the company that you're interviewing for and so on and so forth. So your recommendation is before, so when somebody interviews with you, how do they get the gig over everybody else? What do they need to do to they come to home prepared. with the gold? They need to be prepared. They need to be able to answer questions. But if they don't know something, it's okay to say, I don't know. I was in a room where somebody interviewed with you. Yes. Frank Caliendo. Yes, you were. And I did my research on you. But what my research I did, honestly, just told me that you were a guy who was like, just have your shit together. Just don't just have your shit together and that you really were interested in in how to figure out a way to bring comedy to the network after you had had Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, that and, was that was a tough and 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 Frank did a great job filling those shoes and it was and that's, you know, how you how you follow Jimmy Kimmel as you know, because you were part of it, is is that you know we did not want to go down the same road that we had. We felt that to continue it, we had to take it to a different area, which is what the cold open was all about. How do you evolve? How do you do things mm -hmm. a certain way? It's okay to go back to the well after you do something a certain way, because in my mind, and this is no uh, disrespect to Rob Riggle, because I am a huge Rob Riggle fan. But Rob Riggle's uh, segments are very similar to the tone of Jimmy Kimmel's segments. And Frank Caliendo's were very diametrically different mm -hmm. from those. But I knew... It's kind of like the football coach that... Yeah, the football coach is a player's coach, and then the next coach, they bring in the disciplinarian. And then after the disciplinarian, then they bring in the player's coach. And it keeps going back and forth, back and forth. Uh, kind of like Democrats and Republicans. But anyway, so the point I'm trying to make is that when I went in there with Frank Caliendo, my main thing with Frank was 
if you put together that thing that I know you, you do that we've done together, which is the five minutes of fury mm-hmm. and the five minutes of fury for those of you who haven't listened to an old podcast or whatever was Frank doing 50 impressions that were funny in five minutes. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I could get him in there with you and he stood up and took the risk of just being vulnerable and letting it all out there that you would never expect that to happen. And I can guarantee in your God knows 30 year career or whatever it is that you have never had a meeting like that as long as you live. That That's correct. It was definitely a different meeting. <laughs> Yes, it, it was. It was. It was definitely. A, and what was interesting was, and I think I said this on the David Hill podcast, was daunting when you when you're in the office, is that the guy who's from the news world, he doesn't give a shit. There's VHS tapes all over the place with people's names on them. They're all every every desk and tabletop were these people that I knew in the business who were comedic or whatever, and and I was like, hey, this guy's got to beat out all these people. Mm-hmm. How is he going to beat out all these people? The only way he's going to beat out all these people is he does something and he creates this holy shit moment that blows you the fuck away. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you just have to say to yourself, well, can this guy do it? Right. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's interesting. I mean, we can get to in terms of how Jimmy Kimmel happened. I mean, you, you talked about the show and how you, you number one and we've been number one literally since day one. Um, but there's two things that I think are important. One is the nucleus, a great nucleus. I mean, we have rocks in terms of Terry, Howie and Jimmy. JB was part of that rock, but Kurt, you know, is there. And then what we've looked to do is add some spices. And the first spice that we added was Jimmy Kimmel. Now, how many years in? Oh, golly. Uh, maybe uh, three or four, something like that. Yeah. Now, I always felt when that Jimmy Kimmel first came on. Right. I always felt like the guys just really were not happy that he was hired. They took their time. You know, um, I think some of it was an act. Some of it was real. I'm not going to tell you whose was an act and whose was real. Uh, but some of it was uh, that, you know, just kind of playing off. And Like when Frank was on, when, when Terry always said, not funny, not funny, not, not funny. funny, Frank. I not knew funny. that he liked Frank. Right. And I knew they all thought he was like a lovable, huggable well, Kid. okay, there, there's a couple things. And, you know, I, Jimmy's the best, obviously. You know, I got... It's Jimmy Kimmel happened because of K Rock. I I'm still a big fan of the Kevin and Bean show. I think it is absolutely mind boggling how entertaining they are over 20 years. And if you don't live in LA, I know I think it's on iHeartRadio. You can listen to them. But back then, Jimmy actually did the sports for five minutes. The man show hadn't really gotten going with him and Adam. Uh, and I just love the fact that, you know, he you know the, he made me laugh, they made me laugh, so on and so forth. And his character on that 
was living in his mom's basement, essentially, and picking football games. And he was a degenerate, you know, the kind of degenerate guy. And so the we felt that after like three or four years, we needed to pick games. So it was just kind of it. And back then it was, okay, let's find a Jimmy the Greek guy or let's find an odds maker and we'll do that and it'll be fine. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. And... David and I go, what do you want to do? And I go, I want to hire this comedian guy. Who? Uh, his name's Jimmy Kimmel. He's on K-Rock. He does the sports. Uh, and it'll be great. And they go, you're out of your mind. And I'm like, no, it, it really can work. I said, look, we could get an odds maker on there. It'll be fine. And it'll be what it is. And it'll be okay. But if if we do this and it works... It's a home run, and if it doesn't, we tried something, and that's where I've got to give you know Fox and David uh, a lot of credit. David it, Hill. David Hill, who just was literally inducted into the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame on Tuesday. Uh, a lot of credit in the fact that they weren't afraid to swing and miss. Now, granted, you can't, as you well know, in the television business, you don't want to swing and miss too often or you will swing and miss your way right out the door. Um, so uh, I talked to, to Jimmy uh, and literally the man show might have been in its first year and I hadn't quite honestly seen it. I knew him from K-Rock uh, and kind of told him, here's what my thought is, is that I want you to do the picks, you do some comedy and then uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. Well, I think part of the reason why the guys didn't, you know, some may or may not have is that Jimmy, you know, would kind of be heckling them at various points and, you know, where you're not used to getting heckled in terms of by somebody on your own show. And I always felt that it was, if we can laugh at ourselves and everybody can laugh with you, that was always kind of the concept that we used from the beginning in terms of making the humor of the show. Uh, I remember after Jimmy's first bit, um, the old writer for USA Today by the name of Rudy Martsky wrote that Putting Jimmy Kimmel on was the worst decision in the history. <laughs> worst decision in history. Now think of that. Think of all the decisions that have been made in history, and this was the worst one. I was actually pretty proud of that. Um, it was about ninety-nine against to one. You know, and so it, after you saw Jimmy's first segment, it, you don't hear from anybody. You're just in the control right. room. You see it play, mm -hmm. and then I know you don't have time to do a lot of things, but instinctually, when you first saw it, were you like, "Boy, you know, I." This was uh this did not exceed my expectations. This piece, I hope it gets better. Or were you like, this is the base, this is the best piece? I think Jimmy and and we both would agree that uh, it just went too long. I mean, we had to introduce who he was, what the concept was, not enough time for comedy, and so as a result, the piece was eh. it was kind of eh. It wasn't all. It was just yeah and so and you came out of commercial and you didn't control what the four guys said what did they say after oh I, they, they weren't happy um but putting that aside um 
So after, you know, we got a, a lot of stuff and, you know, I trust me, I was getting pressures like, well, you know what, maybe we just make it one and done. And my quote to somebody was, I'll be goddamn if I'm going to let a bunch of over 50 fucks tell me how to do this show. Um, we're not just going to cut bait in terms of uh, one. Now, I knew the second one was drop dead funny. I knew, I mean, I saw it. It was hilarious. There is no way that people couldn't who like comedy would not, you know. And you're uh, very hands it. on all the time. Yeah, I, and I I knew this was you know Jim Bresca who was producing it at the time. Cousin Sal was part of that, uh, and Jimmy. It was a bit about Doug Flutie, uh, but the punchline was basically heckling Doug Flutie and then he pulls Doug Flutie out of the couch. Cause we had a, <laughs> we'll say a little person, um, uh, as Doug Flutie and it was just hilarity ensued and it was tremendous. Um, what did, so, Mar what did Martsky write after that? Oh, he didn't write it. He wrote about the fact that we had a poll on it. Now here was the deal is that knowing that it was, this was all kind of part of the plan. Jimmy was actually very mad at me for this until I kind of explained it. He's still kind of be, I still don't think he believes me, but whatever. Um, was that knowing that it was funny and knowing that his audience was the internet. Now, keep in mind, I think this is 98, 97 or 98. So the internet isn't what it is today. I mean, it was basically people under 40 for the most part were just getting into the internet and geek heads or whatever so we felt that certainly i did that his audience was more internet based than older based and older people aren't going to vote on the internet younger people are going to vote on the internet so after we did the bit we then put up a poll keep them or sack them now i knew that there was no way that it was going to be Sack him because I would have voted literally every single second because you couldn't have like stopped the voting, you know. So, but I didn't have to. It was 82% keep him, 18 against. Now, he felt that, you know, second day, second show in, you guys put up a thing to keep me or fire me, you know, this is bullshit, you know. It's like, Jimmy. Your bit, we knew it was great. Your viewers are internet people. This will work, and it will eliminate anything down the road. And that was the whole point, is once we put that poll up there, 82 to 18, it was amazing how the calls to fire Jimmy literally ended right then. And so... By the end of Jimmy's run, and obviously we made a good decision by the fact that he got his own show on ABC, which is still running, and now he's at George Clooney's wedding and all that stuff. You mean you made a good decision? Um, I made a good decision. Uh, I do say we a lot uh, because it, 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 it is we. I mean, I, I had to have them sign off on it. Um, but... Um, Anyway, uh, so that same writer, Rudy Martsky, when Jimmy Kimmel left, wrote that there is no way Fox is going to be able to 
replicate the comedy and humor that Jimmy Kimmel <laughs> brought to the show. It was it was one of the funniest things that, in terms of an entire 360, the, I mean, 180, I should say. It's not 360 because it was 360, so we bad again. Uh, in terms of a 180 uh, that, you know, that I could remember. And then we, we hired Frank. And along the way, we added Jillian, uh, which was... Uh, which again, everybody's talking about weather, and I was like, "Yeah, we we tried." And again, I listened to some people. They did a deal with the Weather Channel, and so we had Jim Cantori on. And I know Jim Cantori is a star in the weather world. He's not necessarily a star. And his last his last bit was he started to heckle Terry or make fun of him, and Terry's like on the air going. You know, I don't want to listen to this. And Jim's doing this guy, Scotty, take him off the air. I kills Mike. Done. And we cut him <laughs> off the air. That was the last time we saw Jim Cantori on our air. I mean, Jim's done all right. Uh, I like any, Jim. Has any? Has there ever been a time in your career where a guy from the desk says, Go, "You know, cut his mic and get him off of here"? Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple times. I mean, that's okay. Let's just do it. Because um, usually it ends equals some comedy anyway. And I, I like to laugh. I'd rather laugh now, than be serious. Now, well, now well, I, I want to uh, keep going with this for a second, but then I want to go back. But so, what was the reaction when you told them you were hiring Jillian? And uh, she, that was and actually she, and she David. comes on the set and she's like, uh, she's you know, Jillian. And those of you who don't know Jillian, Jillian's a lot of fun and she she looks great and she's she's not afraid to look great. Um, David and uh, it was funny. Uh, the reason we saw Jillian, I did, I'm not a big morning, especially at that time, a, a morning local news type of deal, and we had the early game with Detroit playing somebody on Thanksgiving. And if anybody has ever worked in local news, you'll realize that trying to do a three-hour morning show on Thanksgiving morning is hell because nobody's coming in. You've got no guests. You've got nothing. So I got a call from their uh, EP and saying, hey, you know, we're on right before your show. Would you mind being able to do like six or seven minutes into our show uh, and I was like, you know what? Sure. I mean, we'll we'll tape our stuff. Well, I think we we're only doing a half hour that particular day. I don't know if it's half hour or whatever. But I said, sure, we'll 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 do something. And David was in the control room with me, and we do the the two way with their set. And Jillian is being Jillian, just kind of took over, uh, and had a great rapport with the guys. And, you know, would heckle them back. They'd go back and forth. Just a lot of fun, lighthearted or whatever. And David and I look at each other, and she does weather, doesn't she, on there? Yeah. Well, what are we waiting for? So uh, that show, we then hire her the following year to do the weather. And the, the thought was, if we're going to do weather, let's do weather. Uh, and Joanne, you know, her 90 seconds, and in those 90 seconds, um, another USA Today. I've got a lot of things in USA Today <laughs> where they've actually written me. This was Christine Brennan, who I believe the quote was that I set women back 20 years by putting Jillian Barbary on there. And I'm thinking to myself, 
90 seconds of weather is setting women back 20 years in sports television. Are you freaking kidding me? Did you put up the poll the second week? No, Should we sack Jillian? We Should we poll. not sack Jillian? No. And then, you know, Jillian did well. She got a bunch of national spots and you know she it could be argued ever. my friend that you've launched some amazing careers um i you're like the lorne michaels of sports no, television I, you know i've i there's people along the way who you know it's worked out and uh joanne and it was great and joanne was fun and then you know all runs end you know, as, or as tom cruise said in that movie all good runs come to an end otherwise it wouldn't end um and so we had gotten to a point where it was like, you know what, it, it, it's it's now different. We don't need to put up the weather map, so on and so forth. And so we I'm decided to hire a new weather girl. And we, Well, you know, I mean, we added Strahan and, you know, that takes time and money, and, you know, we have money. But, you know, we, as Julian would tell you, I don't think she's breaking the bank. You know, I mean, I think we could have been able to handle Strahan and still kept Julian. But. That minute and a half to two minutes by the time that that's value. That's a lot of time uh, that I had to. So I kind of robbed Joanne to pay Michael in terms of being able to get enough time so that Michael could talk and the guys could talk. Uh, and if you add another person on the set, that means theoretically everybody else who's on that set now has one third less time to talk. And so you have to figure out a way to make up that time. And that's part of the reason how we ended up making up that time. Got it. So talk to him about ESPN. Tell me about your experiences there and how that led you to the gig at Fox. Uh, best experience that I got at ESPN was I did all types of shows and all times of shows. I mean, it's funny now. I mean, if you tell people, you know, back in 1994, literally that pregame shows were a half hour on the network, they had, there wasn't any hour long show, um, Super Bowl pregames, I think at that time were two hours long, um, and at ESPN, you know, you would do shows that you had scripted for an hour and they'd get cut down to 10 minutes or you'd have shows that were scripted for a half hour that because events ended that were now an hour and 15 minutes and you just have to kind of produce on the fly. So the experience in terms of inside a live control room and making decisions on the fly was truly invaluable to when I came here at Fox. Um, that was probably the, the biggest thing. But it was the only interview that I've ever done uh, where I got done with the interview. I said, well, if I don't get this job, it wasn't meant to be. Because it was the first interview. I mean, you talk about, you know, interviews and I got all my jobs or whatever. But it was the first time I ever had an interview where I was like, damn, I nailed that. I just nailed that in any question. It was like, I've done this, I've done this. It was like, what are you going to put in an hour show? I remember getting asked that question, and I'm like, an hour is, I, I do more than an hour every day. I mean, an hour is nothing. And which people don't realize this, you don't think about this at home. But these days, when you talk about a half-hour show on network television, that's 21 minutes and 30 seconds. And with your opening and your closing, it might be 
it might be 20 minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, or t- if, if that, I mean. And you know. so an hour show is like 41 minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, it was a little bit less than that. It was actually 38 minutes because we would get off the air at 53 to be able to start the early games. And then we'd do an extra segment. But that really didn't count because it only went to like 4% of the people and and quite frankly, you know, it was, you know, it was just like, let's talk about whatever late game. And they just talked for two minutes. There wasn't a lot of production. On it. So it was basically a 38 minute show. And so you get the gig at ESPN. How do you move up to the point where you're actually one of the head producers on their pregame show with Chris Berman and all their guys? I just did my job. But there's a lot of people at every company across the world that are doing their job and they don't move up. How are you moving up all the time and other people who you're with, they don't move up or they get fired? What are you doing differently? Uh, what am I doing differently? I think people that would tell, tell you about me is that I'm somewhat honest to a fault. Uh, and I kind of say what I mean and mean what I say. Um, I'm not really good at playing games, which I know a lot of people say, well, you got to play the game to get ahead and so on and so forth. And, uh, and there's been times where it's been a detriment to me because there are times where I didn't get promoted because I, I, that's not, you know, I'd get called into uh, ESPN every like two or three months because they'd want their producers when this is in in Bristol, Connecticut, and they wants to wear a jacket and a tie to work. And I'm a coordinating producer. I'm like, really? So then the jacket and tie would then the tie would go, then the jacket would go, and then I'd have the sweater on and then it'd become the golf shirt. And then I'd get called in again. Um, One time I actually offered to make a bet with, as I was getting yelled at for about the third time (laughs) uh, for not properly dressing and uh, it was, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll make you a deal. What's that? I said, you can pick out any 10 people in the newsroom. We'll take your best dress coordinating producer. We know who that is. We'll take me. I'll let you pick the 10. I don't care who the 10 are. Who do you respect more? Ask them the question. Do you respect that guy or do you respect me? And I said, let's bet a paycheck. And he goes, <laughs> He goes, that's not what it's about. I go, this is totally what it's about. You're talking about respect. It's totally about respect. He goes, get the fuck out of my office and put your tie on. Um, but um, no, I just. And you didn't I, yell I did, at the top of your lungs and say, that's why you're no, still in Bristol. I, it was very, yeah, yeah, no, this was very quiet. And at that time, Bristol was, you know, I, I, was, I was very more reserved. But I was like, I still, I still try to say what I mean and mean what I say. But. I do and it not in be more, mean when you say it. I I do it in more measured tones now. I guess no. I, I've I've just tried to really kind of do my job in the best way that I've thought, and tried to do the best television show that I thought. Uh, and and I would always hope that that was good enough. I didn't really. I never tried to stab anybody in the back. I never went in and said, you know what, I want his job. I I just you know if whatever came along came along. It, there's a quote that Yogi Berra has said that, you know, everybody laughs at him about, but it's like when you get to the fork in the road, take it. 
And that's kind of how I lived my career. I didn't really, I, I knew I wanted to be in television and I either wanted to be at the network level in terms of sports or I wanted to be at the network level in terms of news. Whatever happened, happened. I started out in news and realized that that probably wasn't going to be what I ended up wanting to do. So I ended up in terms of sports. Um, but I didn't have like, I got to get to this by this age, or I've got to get here by this age and, or it's not going to work because part of it is that I didn't do that is let's say I said, I need to be in New York by age 30. Well, what happens if you don't, then what? Is it like, okay, now I'm going to be depressed. Now I'm going to be a failure. I'm going to be all that. No, you just kind of. Take life as it comes along, and if you think it's right, chances are it's going to be right. Uh, and you get gut feelings in terms of, uh, like I got offered a job in terms of on the phone in terms of Kansas City uh, when I was in San Antonio in terms of going up there and being a producer. And they were like, yeah, we'll have you because I was producing weekends and doing entertainment stuff during the week for in San Antonio. Uh, and it was, well, you come up and you'll do the local news. And, and Kansas City was a step up from uh, San Antonio. And then during the week, you'll run the, you know, Chiron machines and help, you know, do Chiron for the six o'clock news. And I said, no. And I go, well, what do you mean? No. I go, no, I, I, I don't do Chiron. I will never do Chiron. <laughs> and they go, well, is it something we can talk about? No, that's it. No, I, I, I thank, thanks a lot. But that was one of the things that I said I would never do when I got in this business. I'm not going to type for a living uh, in terms of putting stuff on the air. Um, we're done. And it didn't, you know, it was just one of those that didn't feel right, even though it would have been a step up in terms of my career. It was like, no, I, I, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do this. Um, the power of no. Yeah, the power of no actually wor works out. And then fortunately, it was great because then I ended up going to Minneapolis. And then if I had been in Kansas City, I never would have gotten ESPN. So, I mean, things work out for a reason. And if you think it's right, usually is right. Awesome. So tell me about the pregame show that you produced before you went to Fox with Chris Berman. Who were the cast members and and what was that all about? Um, it was uh, Chris Berman. Uh, there was uh, Pete Axton was part of it. Joe Theismann and Tom Jackson. Tom Jackson was the main one. Uh, Chris Mortensen, who's still there, was part of it. Uh, Bob Rauscher was the coordinating producer. I was the producer. I did that, and I also uh, kind of got uh, I got NFL primetime when it started. I took over that the second year. And who was, was on that? Uh, that was uh, Chris Berman, uh, Tom Jackson, Robin Roberts uh, was uh, did highlights as well uh, on that show. Uh, I. I did the NFL. I, I think that I got the job. How did Not the, to sound like a jerk, but because I was good. How did the job at Fox come about? You're you're moving up at ESPN. You're come, getting to the highest levels. Mm -hmm. Why do you decide to jump to Fox? How many times do you ever get to start on the network on the ground floor? That was really it. Uh, nothing more. Nothing Who came less. to you? Who approached you? Uh, I got a call from 
uh, actually Ed Gorin, uh, who works with David Hill, who works with David Hill. He was uh, David's number two. He was the and what happened was is uh, the, there was a producer in front of uh, that had been there before, and then for a number of different reasons, it didn't work out. And so about six weeks before, it was actually the last full week in July of 94. Six weeks before Fox NFL Sunday premiered for the first time. They didn't have a producer. Didn't have a producer. They had just gotten rid of their producer. So um, one of the guys that came over from ESPN who was doing games, he was asked, okay, who at ESPN could come over and do the show? And he recommended me. But aren't you under contract? No. See, that was the thing, is that back then, the CBS producers, the ABC producers, the NBC producers were under contract. ESPN, you got to keep in mind that in 94 wasn't the juggernaut that it is now. And people, especially at the network level, oh, your cable, okay, um, kind of looked down on, on cable in terms of what it could do. But uh, they didn't have any options. Uh, but this was a situation of, with Fox where you didn't have to interview. They wanted you. Yeah, but I still have to interview. I mean, you got to interview. I mean, it's. I didn't have an agent. I still don't have an agent. Never had an agent. Sorry. You probably could have <laughs> made me some money. Uh, but anyway. I um, would have made you some money. Yeah, you would have. But anyway, I probably would have gotten sacked earlier. Uh, <laughs> which, by the way, I've never been sacked from a job. Which, never been uh, fired. Never been fired. You uh, retired recently on your own terms. I retired recently on my own terms. Uh, and so uh, looking forward to that and getting my golf game in somewhat manageable condition. Anyway. Um, so uh, he recommended them to me. I was at that time overseeing the uh, 2.30 uh, show. Uh, by the way, SportsCenter wasn't on 24 hours a day. In fact, the uh, 2.30 show, there was not a 2 o'clock. It was only a half hour, 2.30, uh, 2.30 to 3 a.m. in the morning. Who was the biggest sports anchor on SportsCenter beside Berman back then? Oh, John Saunders was probably the biggest. Uh, I was working at 2.30 with Craig Kilborn and uh, Carl Ravage. And Kilborn and I got along really well because his sensibilities and mine were the same, and I let him go places that, let's say, management at ESPN wasn't necessarily happy with me letting him go those places. But I was of the mind, you hired this guy to be this guy, let him be that. You know, that's what you hired him for. It's like, why do you hire Keith Olbermann to be Keith Olbermann? Why do you hire Terry Bradshaw to be Terry Bradshaw? Uh, you hired Craig Kilborn to be Craig Kilborn. Anyway, so I got a call from, from Ed saying, uh, hey, uh, love to talk to you about the show. Can I meet you in New York? Uh, can you come down to New York and let's meet? Uh, this was on Tuesday at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, no, I can't do that. And he goes, why? <laughs> you know, and I go, because I'm doing the 2.30 Sports Center and I've got to at least sleep for a couple hours before I come to New York. Can we do 11? I guess we can do 11. So I, there's, a, there's a pattern in my life that you'll find out in terms of this, this podcast when it's over. So uh, anyway, so I get down and I met Ed and a woman by the name of Janice Delson. Uh, both of them come from CBS. Uh, we met at the uh, Riga Royal Hotel, uh, which I don't think which is, is no the, longer. Which uh, at the time, I believe, was the only five-star hotel in New York City. Yeah, it was great. It was a great hotel. I was like, okay, this is a little different. Anyway, um, 
So I met with them, and like I said, the interview went great. Uh, I got done with the interview, and I was like, well, if I don't get this job or whatever. So we get done with the interview, and Ed says, okay, um, you're going to have to obviously talk with David Hill, uh, who's the boss. And I had done some research in terms of who David was, and uh, you should probably call him when you get back to Bristol and we get back to Connecticut. And I will have talked to him before then. And so on and so forth. And I go, okay, great. So I get back, I, I get to Connecticut and I, um, I, I get a call from, uh, I called David and I said, Hey, this is Scott Ackerson. Can I talk to, uh, David Hill? And, uh, his assistant at the time goes, no, David's not here, but you're supposed to talk to Larry Jones. Now, Larry Jones is the, for those of you who don't know, is at the time and still is the head business affairs person at, at the network and something a lot of people don't realize about this and i should share this just for a minute is that every single network and every single television studio and every single film studio has a business affairs person they're a, a tried and true lawyer who's been around a long time sometimes they worked at a firm and then they moved over to this job. Sometimes they just started underneath the business affairs person. But every deal runs through these people. They touch every single deal. There isn't one deal that happens that doesn't go through their office. And that's the way it always is. And so, but what uh, Scott's alluding to here is that he didn't understand why he had to talk to Larry Jones because he didn't know he had a job yet. Right. A, I didn't know he had a job. And B, I'd never heard of the name Larry Jones in terms of, like, I knew the players in terms of Chase Carey and Rupert and David and Ed. But Larry's name was never part of that mix. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, who's Larry? So I pick up the phone, talk to Larry, and I go, hey, hi, this is uh, Scott Ackerson. This is Larry Jones. Yeah. Um so tell me about yourself. I go, well, you know, I work at ESPN. He goes, hey, you married? I go, yeah. Uh, got a uh, got a house? Yeah. Got any kids? I go, who are you? <laughs> I just. You said, who are you? I go, who are you? Why are you asking me these questions? He goes, well, that's my understanding. The job's yours if you want it. I'm like, whoa, okay. Um, uh, I need to talk. I, I need to think about it for 24 hours. Uh, because I, I, you know, my wife was there. She worked at ESPN. Uh, we had just had a daughter and, you know, I, I said, I, I got to have 24 hours to think about it. Now keep in mind, you know, the clock's ticking, you know, we're going on the air now less than six weeks. Power of no, everybody. Um, the power of no. I can guarantee you one thing, everybody. And he hasn't even said, I don't know the answer to this. I'm putting myself on a limb in those 24 hours. Do you think he heard from David Hill? Uh, the answer is no. And and this is, this is a bad story. It, it, we're going to get to it. So I didn't I didn't hear from David, but I knew I had to call David back the next day. So I, I, I pick up the phone and I'd mentioned my golf game earlier, which will be germane to the story. So uh, I decided I was going to take the job. So I called David the next day before I go in to tell ESPN that I'm going to take the job. Uh, and he said, hi, David, Scott Ackerson here. He goes, hey, how you doing? I go, great. Uh, couldn't be better because uh, I'm going to come to work at Fox. This is on a Wednesday. He goes, 
that's fantastic. You know, in his blustery Australian name. If you don't know David, he's got a Australian way about him. Check out the podcast that we did together. Right. He goes, uh, that's great. We'll get you on a plane tomorrow. You can start working on Friday. Uh, that's a little bit of a problem. Hey guys, what's the problem? You're not under contract. Okay. You want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to lie to you? He goes, no, tell me the truth. I said, the truth is, is that my brother has flown in from Ohio to Connecticut we're in the defending champions in our member guest golf tournament. I'd really like to play the member guest golf tournament. <laughs> I said, David, uh, I know I'm the second guy that you hired, but I'm not the wrong guy that you hired. One day's not going to make a difference. We will be good. We will be fine. Pause, dead silence. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I just threw away this job. Um, he goes, I'll see you on Monday. And knowing the David that I know now, he was probably kind of happy that, you know, he had somebody that had some confidence and was ready to do the show and so on and so forth. But again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to people here to tell your boss that you're going to not show up to play in a member guest golf tournament when there's only five weeks to get a project off the ground. But it was a project that I had, I could literally have done it, you know, in my sleep in terms of what I knew in terms of football shows and so on and so forth. So, um, ended up, uh, Coming out here, uh, literally came out on that following Monday, started working, and we got to show up in five weeks, and, you know, we did some changes that I felt were needed for the show, and what our philosophy was is we were going to have fun, uh, and, you know, everybody kind of ridiculed us that, you know, that's, you know, fun, you know, and we're like, it's a sports, this isn't anything more than sports why wouldn't you have fun fortunately uh david david uh agreed with that philosophy actually was you know kind of uh doing that you know wanted to make sure that that was in the forefront of what we did that it wasn't going to be as he would say uh the uh what is it the uh he doesn't use the protestant church he uses uh another church but it's uh worthy yet boring um that wasn't what we were going to have in terms of our shows it was going to be worthy but it was going to be fun uh but it was going to be natural type of fun at least at at the beginning so uh when we opened our show so your first show take us take us take our audience through what you're feeling the tension the nervousness the the feelings of what was going to happen in that first show and and tell our audience what worked and what maybe didn't work um well uh i'll give you a story the night before uh i'm in my office uh and this was in the old uh, metro media studios in sunset which now i think is a school mm-hmm. uh and it was kind of cool because the sound stage that we used was the same sound stage that was used for all in the family uh and in living color and norman lear it's the only guy i've ever met that i've actually been in awe of because i think norman lear is one of the most brilliant television people uh ever 
Um, and it's, I, 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 it's a very, very short list. And, you know, I, that's the first guy that I was like, wow, I'm actually meeting Norman Lear. I mean, Paul McCartney, whatever, you know, it's a Beatle. It's another guy who rock. I mean, okay. Uh, Norman Lear was to me, uh, that was, that was a big deal anyway. Um, so he's like, why are you still here? I go, well, I just wanted to, you know, touch up a couple of things. And David goes, you also need to get some sleep. Uh, yeah, it's a big day tomorrow. So he, he goes, what do you, what do you really think? And I go, we're going to surprise some people tomorrow in a good way. And I was really confident because of the talent that we had that we were going to be good. Um, should have gotten fired that first day because it was the advent of computerized scoring. And one of the problems happened, like the pregame show was great. There wasn't really a lot that we had Terry right in from a horse that we shot here where we started on the Hollywood sign. And it looks like he's, you know, running, you know, riding a horse through downtown LA and, the Chinese theater and, you know, ends up on the lot and pulls in time to go to work, time to go to work. <laughs> He's a cowboy. And then he introduces our set and everybody looks 20, 30 years younger and it's all good. Um, but what happened after that uh, was an absolute disaster. Uh, I had never done shows where you bring in, different networks the way nfl shows are done uh you'll see a game in let's say columbus ohio and then there could be another game that is being televised in la and a different game in new york and so on and so over well halftimes all hit around the same time and you have to count in and you have to do different things and they had told us okay you just when you bring in an audience, you'll just go, okay, we're going to have game one, two, three, four, six, seven, whatever it is. And when that first one hit, it was a disaster because, A, I was like, they tried to explain it, but unless you actually did it, you had no idea what they're talking about. And so literally, like the third halftime, I go, oh, okay, so this is what this is. This is, we're going to have to change the way we do business, but... um so somebody actually had the bright idea, I don't know who it was, of always having our talent on camera in between highlights and not doing a full screen scoreboard. Well, the problem was is that in two or three of the games, the information that we were getting was flipped. So let's say it's New England and they're playing Miami and New England's at home. Well, we were getting... Miami would have New England score, New England have Miami score, and there were three, and the scores were a disaster. It was just awful. Um, because back then it was all about the network pregame wars, everybody just wrote about the network pregame shows and said, wow, Fox came out, this was great. There was one writer, and I ended up uh, seeing him on this uh, later, and I, and uh, his name was, he's passed since then. His name was Prentice Rogers. He was with the Atlanta uh, Constitutional Journal. And he basically just killed us. Uh, said, you know what? They look amateurish. You know, they can't even get scores right, highlights right. So he's 100% right. Um, I actually saw him in the Miami Super Bowl. And I go, you're Prentice Rogers, right? 
Yeah, you really, that first show, you really killed us. Yeah, I just want to thank you uh, because you were 100% right. Uh, the show was awful. I just want to tell you that of all the writers around the country, you were the only one that pointed that out. And so you did your job well, and, you know, it made us do some adjustments. So thanks. And he looks at me like I'm from Mars because, as you well know, nobody compliments writers for ripping you. Um, and he's like, it's the first time I've ever been talked to politely for <laughs> absolutely killing a project. Um, I said, no, you, you did your job and you did, that was fine. You were factually correct. And that's the only thing I've ever asked in terms of criticism is, it's just, as long as it's factually correct, it's fine. Cause I don't, I don't really take criticism to heart. Um, Unless it's like across the board and, you know, you've just been a total disaster or whatever, because then if everybody's saying it, it's fine. But if it's one person's opinion, that's all it is. They might have a bigger form because they're writing for a newspaper or whatever, but it's just one person's opinion. To me, the only thing that matters is what are the ratings and our ratings are better than them now. And they got to be a lot better than them. And so that's the only thing that I've really worried about. So Prentice Rogers was the guy who actually wrote the correct um, synopsis of what Fox was on that very first day. The well, only one. Day one, show one. Day one, show one, number, number one. one. And so uh, I have a lot of things to ask you, which we don't have enough time for, unfortunately. But I want to just uh, I want to just ask you a, a, a few more things here. Just it's your world, man. I just live in it. Let's pretend no one's under contract in the entire sports world. Okay. No one is under contract. I'm still, I'm not retired yet. Just hang on. <laughs> Let's pretend you're starting your own sports network. Somebody gives you a billion dollars and they want you to create your own sports network and they want you to create your own new NFL pregame show. And they say you have the budget to hire four people. Mm -hmm. Who are the four you hire? No one's under contract right now. It's two that going into 2015. You have to think of new media, social media, the internet, uh, how cable is doing, what the cutting edge things, the whole issue. What, you're going to say this who's is your a cop dream, out. Who's your dream team? This is going to you're going to say this is a cop out, but I'd hire those four guys. Michael, Jimmy, Terry, and Howie. And I'll tell you why. Um, Michael, um, because he is, you know, the, the Michael Strahan. Michael Strahan, who, you know, I believe he is one of Barbara Walters' ten most interesting people for the year, or whatever it is, what it, most fascinating, or I forget what that title is, but I believe he's one of them. And, and Michael is so versatile. I mean, just to see where he's come from. Uh, a guy that's got a gap tooth lisp uh, to be able to be as successful, but Michael just says warmth. Um, Howie's a rock. Howie is EF. Remember those, uh, those, I mean, the prudential, you know, get a piece of the rock, you know, unfortunately, some, oh, never mind. I was going to do a bad <laughs> joke. Um, but um, Howie is the rock. Uh, Terry. 
because Terry, when you talk about fearless, Terry is really fearless on television. Terry will go to places and take you places that, you know, the question that I probably get, I guarantee you the question that I've gotten asked the most in my career is, is Terry Bradshaw as dumb as he, everybody think, you know, as he appears on television? I go, let me ask you a question. I don't know how many people that are dumb that have a 900 acre ranch, <laughs> fly private jets, <laughs> and command $100,000 or more um, for. I think that's what it is. It could be less, could be more for a speaking engagement. That's not somebody who's dumb. That's somebody who's really smart. Um, but, you know, Terry, you know, had a, you know, a persona and it's something that really bothered him for a, a long time. Um, I remember um, getting him to sit down with Hollywood Henderson and he really didn't want to do it. And I kind of talked him into it by, you know, just saying, look, Terry, look at your life and look at the life he's had. Um, you know, I think we both, and after he got done with it, I, he couldn't have been happier. There, there's two Super Bowl pregame shows that I'm really proud of. One, obviously, was the one after 9-11. Um, and then the, the other one was a Super Bowl in Miami where um, I got Terry to sit down with Hollywood Henderson. If you guys don't know the history of Hollywood Henderson and Terry Bradshaw was at a Super Bowl, and Terry was a you know kid from louisiana and everybody had kind of given him a dumb label and trust me he's not dumb he's anything but that um and then hollywood he was just starting to get over that again and then hollywood henderson did the line you couldn't spell cat if you spotted him the c and the t and then that just brought all that back so terry had a very very big resentment to hollywood henderson now hollywood henderson uh was a guy who was kind of the life of the party, did too much blow, ended up in jail, um, and uh, literally turned his life around. And it, as it turned out, it was one of his 12 steps that he wanted to apologize to Terry face-to-face. So it was a really powerful moment. Turns out he hit the, he's hit the lottery twice. The, the real lottery, like, you know, you win millions lottery, not just, hey, scratch and sniff, I got $200,000, like twice, Texas lottery. Anyway, um, and then the other story that was um, that was really cool was I got Chris Collinsworth to sit down with Stanley Wilson, uh, who he hadn't ever sat down with after Stanley Wilson was found in a cocaine stupor in his bathtub the night before the Super Bowl. Uh, and Chris actually Stanley was on his team. Stanley was on his team, was an integral part of that team, was the fullback. Their running game would have been a lot different. I think actually they would have beaten uh, the San Francisco 49ers if Stanley Wilson had played in that game. Um, but he didn't. Um, and Chris had kind of felt that Stanley was the reason he didn't have a Super Bowl ring. After he got done with the interview, he found out uh, a lot of things that he didn't know that I did know about the story. Um, and, you know, obviously forgave Stanley. And I, I think Stanley is, you know, unfortunately is is in jail for other things that had happened uh, since then. Um, but, um, and then Jimmy Johnson is one of the smartest men that I know. Uh, I gave the story in terms of the earpiece earlier where Jimmy Johnson was the first coach, certainly in college, to have a molded earpiece because 
as he was talking on the air, he um, wanted to let recruits know that he has a good look as opposed to the big mushroom. So I, I, I know you think it's kind of a cop out answer, but it's really not. I mean, that's OK. I'll take that answer and I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll raise you this one thing. OK, you can hire a sixth person on the team. Okay. You can hire any person in the world of sports broadcasting to be on that panel. Who is the person? I'm a big fan of Chris Collinsworth, but he also did the show, so that doesn't count either, right? I can't use Chris? Nope. Uh, sixth person to be on that show in terms of... You can hire anybody. Doesn't matter if they're under contract or not. I've always loved Deion Sanders. I always have. I there's just and I know there's people that you know don't like Dion and Dion can be very polarizing or whatever. But he just makes me laugh. He's a funny dude. Um, and I just always I always like Dion. Um, I, and I know that that's probably not necessarily the, a popular answer or whatever, and it might not be the most liked answer in terms of, but I think you could do a lot with Dion if you put him in the right setting. I think Dion, I think Dion could have, I was really worried. I thought CBS didn't necessarily use Dion right. Uh, Dion to me is kind of like Terry in that, yes, Terry. But Dion couldn't be Terry in this respect, is that uh, Terry is the star of the show, but also Terry is a star who will defer to others. A lot of stars, as you well know, I'm the star, you know, everybody else getting back. Terry will take himself out of stuff to let the other guys shine. I don't believe Dion would do that. And if you could get Dion to do that, then I think Dion could really kind of elevate his game. Um, but there, I always had a fascination with Dion and what you could do with him um, because I always thought he was, I always thought he was funny and smart and witty and awesome. Let's do a name association. I want to mention a name. Tell me a story, a quick story or something that comes to mind that means something to you. Uh, throughout your experiences. Keith Oberman. <laughs> the most probably brilliant mind talent I ever worked with. Um, conversely, probably the most difficult talent I ever worked with. Keith is a brilliant individual. Um, truly smart. Um, I'll give you one Keith Oberman story. Um, this is when we were both at ESPN. Uh, Daryl Strawberry had gone AWOL with the Dodgers. Uh, didn't show up for a game. Uh, Keith had just done the 11 o'clock show with Dan Patrick. I was uh, overseeing the 2.30 or whatever. Uh, this was obviously not during football season. So at ESPN, I did the football show and then I'd oversee sports center on the off times that I didn't, uh, I go to Keith and I said, Keith, uh, Daryl's a wall, as you well know, can you put together a history of Daryl strawberry for me? 
When I say that he did this off the top of his head, was done in 30 minutes, there was no books, there was no stuff. It was the chronological history of Daryl Strawberry's highs, lows, and his career off the top of his head, written and tracked in 30 minutes. Keith Olbermann is the only person that could have done that. That piece would not have gotten on the air without Keith's brilliance. Uh, Keith and, you know, and it's good to see him, you know, where he is now. I think he's in a much better place, um, which is great, um, is that, um, you know, at times he could be, you know, so we say temperamental, uh, Joe Theismann, uh, Joe likes being Joe, but. I I had very few issues with with Joe. I I I think Joe just wanted to be just Joe football players are are very unique in this sense. Tell me what I need to do, when I need to do it, and that's what I want to happen. And if you didn't do that with Joe, Joe would be a problem. But if you did that with Joe, Joe wouldn't be a uh Problem and, and all football players are like that. They're not a problem. Um, and you know, Joe knows that he's Joe. Chris Berman. Boom. Ah. E. I. I love Boom. Um. Known Boom for years. Uh. Obviously. Uh. Work together. NFL prime time. See him every you know a couple times a year. We just laugh. Um. A person whose personality is as big as he is. He just uh, loves sports. Um, people don't realize how much he really loves sports. I mean, everybody goes to his nicknames and, you know, ah, that's out of the way, whatever. Chris Berman loves not only the NFL, but he, he loves sports. And I really don't care if people, what they think. Chris Berman is one of the people that one of the, probably the five people that are responsible for the success ESPN has. Dan Patrick. Good hair. Um, <laughs> and he would tell you that, too. Dan's very smart. Uh, uh, a guy who I would say doesn't suffer fools uh, and expects you to bring as much to the table as he's bringing to the table. And if you don't, he'll let you know about it. But th that that's fine. There's there's nothing wrong with that. I'd rather have that than the other way. Joe Buck. Joe Buck. Joe Buck can go from calling a football game. We were we, we talked about being on the road. And when we were on the road, we'd have a we have a doubleheader show that was called the OT. And back then, the OT actually would go more than it does now because the NFL games were earlier. And so it would literally be a 40-minute show after our second half of our doubleheader. Joe would call the football game and then come down and have to do the OT show within five minutes. He sat on that set and could ask questions, do the highlights as if he had watched every single game. Joe is... Fucking brilliant. Wow. And I don't care uh, anybody in terms of 
Twitters and, you know, all that stuff. You guys have no idea how good Joe Buck is. And to get some of the criticisms that I think of, that I hear in terms of Joe Buck, uh, to me, are just a joke and people who don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Sorry to be so frank, but it's no, fucking I remember, true. I remember being a Patriots, <laughs> being a Patriots fan, right? And I remember watching that Super Bowl, and uh, the guy who's not even in football anymore, who caught the pass against his helmet. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, uh, Tyree and David, David Tyree. Tyree, and you and you listen to the call from Joe Buck, and I love Joe Buck, but the call that Joe Buck made on that play was like literally like he was just walking down the street to a Starbucks. It was like. This is the, one of the greatest plays in the history of sports, and I think he regrets that play, mm. calling it that way, and he's been called on a lot, but he's one of the greatest ever. And I'm not going to say Joe Buck's perfect, but... No, no, I, but, 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 I mean, there's times when everybody has yeah. their moments, and you. It, the problem is is sometimes it's on a big stage, and sometimes it's somebody like me that's a big fan. But. Right, no, but let's, let's think of this, okay? You watch a network show, or you watch television, and most of it is on tape, Okay. What Joe does for a living is he talks for three to four hours, live television, whether it's a baseball game or, I mean, guys like Joe Buck and Al Michaels who do that and have to always be right I always have to be good because there's some mutant that's watching the game that's out there going, fucking Joe Buck didn't know from 1986. Who gives a rat's ass? I mean, (laughs) you wouldn't know it either. You want to be able to talk for four hours uh, and be able to be coherent for four hours? Of course you're going to say some stuff. But uh, it's, you know, and I don't even work with Joe. I mean, I I worked with him for that year, but... uh, He's really good. Craig Kilborn. <laughs> Craigster. Release rotation splash <laughs> uh, for a three-pointer. Um, very, uh, uh, how do I, let's see. Craig, uh, Craig is a person who uh, is not afraid to challenge the norm. And it sometimes gets him in trouble. There was one time where he was doing an update for ESPN2. And I'm getting suspended. Um, where it was like, he didn't want to do it. They made him do it. And he's like, I don't want to do this. They're like, you got to do it. You got to be on the schedule. Sorry. So he, he does the update. It's like, Nick's whatever. Blah, 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 blah. And after the break, more Craig Kilborn right after this. <laughs> Well, you didn't do that back then, and so um, I wish uh, I wish Craig was in uh, was still doing stuff in terms of sports. I I had a blast working with Craig. We were doing two thirty. I let him go places that other producers didn't, and it was fun. Rune Arledge, uh, the man who made modern sports television. Did you ever get to meet him? And uh... never got to meet Rune. I never got, but I'll tell you what, I, I didn't know Rune, but I would be, imagine that David Hill is kind of the closest thing that we had to Rune. Innovator, always thinking about how are we going to do it better? How are we going to go to that next step? The one phrase that I do here is we're going to take it to the next level. I remember asking executive one time, this wasn't at Fox, this was at uh, ESPN, because they've got some catchphrases 
back then and it was like, okay, we're going to step it up. I want you to take it to the next level. I kept hearing this. And finally, me kind of being a smart ass, um, I said, I held up my hand. I said, can you define what the next level is? <laughs> Again, I wouldn't recommend it. Got the look. Uh, can I talk to you afterwards? So on and so forth. But it was like, I hate, um, I hate people who kind of say you need to step it up and then don't have any suggestions. I don't mind say step it up and then we brainstorm and we do some stuff, but to just say you need to get better. Well, okay, what do you suggest? Do you have any thoughts? No, you just need to get better. You know, just go away. Rupert Murdoch. Oh, I met him a couple of times. Um, uh, Rupert Murdoch is a guy who came from very little and built the greatest media empire in the world. News Corp, and this isn't hyperbole, News Corp is the greatest media empire in the world and had a lot of rough challenges uh, along the way. But Rupert always believed in his gut and wasn't afraid to take a risk. So I would say Rupert Murdoch, risk taker, winner. Got it. What's the, the biggest disappointment in your professional career and how did you use it to move to the next level? Biggest disappointment in... Oh, um, it was probably some promotion that I didn't get. Um, I've been very fortunate. I haven't had a lot of disappointments. I really haven't. Um, I didn't, you know, in terms of when I went from one news station to the other, I always would go one year and then the next year I was in another station. Next year I was in another station, just kind of moving up the ladder. Um, I think, um, uh, I think that uh, it was probably, you know, a promotion at ESPN that I didn't get. There was one time where there was a person, and I wish I had thought of the line. Somebody else did, got promoted, that couldn't do my job. And it's like, okay, so you're going to promote this person. Now this person's going to tell me what to do. Um, that doesn't seem kind of right to me. Um, and so... You know, not in terms of running the, the, the station. It's kind of like being a, a coordinating producer above me. Um, but, um, golly, I've never really thought about that. Probably his biggest disappointment was um, not spending enough time with my daughter when she was growing up. I mean, that, that really is it. I worked weekends. I worked nights. Um you know, as the ESPN, and then, you know, she came out here when she was about two. And, you know, when you're growing up, kids' activities are on weekends. Sports television happens on weekends at the network level. And so uh, while she was playing her softball and doing all that stuff, um, uh, I missed that. Uh, I missed a good part of that. So that's probably my biggest disappointment. Professionally-wise, fuck. If you had, had to do it, run. if you had to do it all over again, would you choose going to the games or the career you've had? I take the career I've had and just hope that she understands. Um, and you know, um, I, I think you, you know, eventually, you do the older you get, you know, but you know, you'll never quite be as close as you'd like to be, and rightly so because you know you're not there. Um, but I would, I would take the career in a heartbeat because. 
you know, the objective is to work is to provide with your family and to give your family the best options possible. And this job has afforded me the opportunity to do that. And so um, I would take the career in a heartbeat. I would just try to maybe figure it out, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you don't necessarily look at the piece until the next day and you could try to maybe figure out your Saturdays, but there was nothing I could do in terms of Sundays and that type of stuff. It was just the job that I had. Your proudest moment professionally. The Super Bowl pregame show 2002, uh, right after 9-11, where the country was, you know, was in a much, much different place than it is now. Uh, And we basically did a celebration to this country. Um, And David and Jim Steig started the process down in New Orleans talking about it and then uh, kind of taking what... David's vision was, and the the best compliment I ever got from him was after that show where he said, you took the concept that I wanted to do and did it so much better than I ever could have dreamed it would be. Um, And that was by far and away my, uh, my proudest, uh, proudest moment i've had a i've had i've been fortunate enough to do a lot of different shows but there's there was never a show and i really considering where we were in a country and it was really the first really big sporting event for a our country in terms of a celebration and that will ever top that and i actually knew that after i did it it was like it's never going to get any better than this. I mean, we we nailed the show. Uh, it was the first time that all the presidents had ever gotten together for a project. We had Clinton, we had Carter, we had former First Lady um, Nancy Reagan, uh, and we had H.W. Uh, uh, Bush all read a thing called uh, Lincoln's Portrait. Um and then the other thing that we we did that was actually kind of cool, and it still is a tradition actually on on Fox Sports. Uh, hopefully, it'll continue after both David and I are gone. Um, but we've always ended our Super Bowls with NFL players reading the Declaration of Independence. Now, um, that kind of seems a little weird, but. To me, I don't think people in this country really know enough about their history in terms of where we came from and what you should, uh, you know, pay attention to and what you should learn. And it's an opportunity just to remind people how this country started. And I was very, very particular in terms of the people that we chose for that. Um, and it was, to me, it was a really, if you made that list and you were one of the people that we asked to do that, it was a really big deal. Um, and I just think it's kind of a cool thing. It, um, 
I got a great letter from a history teacher in Tennessee. This is when snail mail was still big. Uh, and the history teacher just said, you know, I saw that and I brought it into my class and I had the class do it. And it was a history class and it was eighth grade. And I was like, that's really cool. So um, it was a neat tradition, but by far and away, the, the show I'm the most proud of. Awesome. Last question. What advice do you have for the young executive or the young person who wants to get on camera like uh, or an athlete who is ending his career and thinking about getting to the next level or like I said like the young executive who's working his way through Altoona Pennsylvania to get to the next level and get to the levels that you've gotten to or the Terry and Howie Jimmy and Michael Strahan have gotten to well a, a, a couple things one be don't don't be afraid to fail I mean, there's a lot of ideas that we've done and a lot of shows and stuff that, you know, didn't work. Uh, but, you know, try to learn from them and try to pull out what did and what hasn't worked. Uh, for if you're in college or what have you, don't be afraid to work for free. Um, there are so many people that I, I, I meet with and it's like, okay, so what are my hours going to be? What am I going to be paid you know, what are, you know, what are the holidays? And if anybody comes and asks those questions, I automatically eliminate them from consideration. Uh, it's not about, especially in entry-level jobs, if they tell you that you're going to work 60 to 80 hours, you're going to work 60 to 80 hours, and you're going to like it. Uh, the, I, like, when I started out my career, I literally worked for a hundred dollars a week, and the other five days, and that was just because I had a weekend gig. The other five days a week, I worked for free because I was just interning, just getting reps. Um, so anything you can do to get your foot in the door, even if it's free, if it's a runner or whatever, you just do it and don't like. You know, oh, God, they're ripping me off. No, they're giving you experience. They're giving something you can put on your resume. Uh, too many people in college, and this is something that I, I learned, is, is that think of how many colleges there are across the country and then multiply that by the number of people that are coming out of college. Now you know how many people are up for essentially the same job. So if it comes down to the job, am I going to hire the person that's got the 4.0 degree? Or am I going to hire the person that maybe is a 3.2, but has spent two or three years interning, working, and doing stuff in college? You know, the answer to that is I'm hiring a person that's a 3.2 because they've put in the effort. They've done other things. It's not just about being book smart. So... Um, that's what I would say. And common sense and your gut feeling goes a long way. If you think it's right and you've got some good common sense, chances are it is. And if it's not, don't be afraid to say my bad. Don't be afraid to say that was my fault. Don't be afraid to give other people credit too. Um, especially if you're an executive, um, 
the one thing that you want to get people to work the one of the most proudest things I, I was in terms of the show is nobody ever left the show to do a job that was parallel. And like somebody didn't go to be an AP to go be an AP on another show. They left to go, I'm going to be a vice president. Or I'm going to be this. Okay. Um, because and a big part of it is, is that they knew if they did something well, I wasn't going to be a person who said, well, that, that was me. It's like, you know, that was Jennifer Pransky. That was Bill Richards. That was whoever. Um, and it doesn't make you weak. It actually makes you strong. And what it also does is that those people will go through that door for you. If they know that if they go through, if they know that they've done a good job and they know they're going to get the credit, they will do whatever they can for you. If they know you're going to take the credit, they ain't giving 110%. They're giving 70%. They're doing their job and they will go to try to find another job as soon as they can. So don't be afraid to give other people credit. We all, I'm in this position because I work with a lot of great people. I've worked with, you know, some of the best or whatever, and I've been very fortunate to to do that. Uh, nobody, nobody, not even Rupert Murdoch, makes it because of their just by themselves. Nobody does. There are a lot of people in this business, especially in Hollywood, who would probably want to disagree with that statement. Uh, but in fact, it, it's true. And you, what you want to try to do is try to find the best and the brightest and hire them. That's what you want to do. Awesome. Scott Ackerson, you stepped it up. You took it to the next level. <laughs> and Did I bring my A game? You brought your A game. Yeah. And this is a podcast that other people who do this will have to compare themselves to. Yeah. I, and this is your first podcast. First and probably last. I don't do podcasts. I don't. I'm very. This is the longest interview I've ever done in my life by far and away. Well, uh, I don't like to. There's a reason why I'm behind the camera, as you can see, I've got the. You know, the, the, the nice chin there. Um, you're a very handsome man. And wow. because of you, I'm going to say I'm thankful to Ari Manis for producing this podcast <laughs> and doing such a great job and you sitting man. here for 17 hours. Yes. And because you told me I need to give credit more and I'm going to do that. There and, you go. Uh, and so thank you so much. Right. It was an honor to have you here. It was well, so great. The audience for inviting is, me. Oh, the audience is going to love you. So inspirational. And as always, if you like the show... Uh, tell all your friends, and if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. This is Barry Katz with another episode of Industry Standard. They say it's glory, I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain, it's never quite over. 
So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.